Ron Hartfield said, The experience of African peoples in America is inherently and profoundly characterized by the act of looking backward. If we do not look back, we cannot know who we are. The non-volitional journey from Africa, the dreaded Middle Passage, the tearing apart of families, language systems, and ritual practices rooted in communal consensus, the severing of mothers from infants, brides from bridegrooms, all have contributed to Black America's obsessive concern with its past. It is in the seeking of both African-American writers and artists and establishing of connections between both of these streams that the nexus of much of African-American art resides. W.E.B. Du Bois described the double consciousness, the two-ness of the black experience. He described it as two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. In this special edition, we will be covering history of theater through the black experience. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. We are so glad to be back in your feeds on the regular. Well, for this month, it's going to be more than regular uh, because it's Black History Month. And since it's the shortest month of the year, you're getting a double dose of Kay and Warren. It might end up being triple seeing how this rolls out. <laughs> Because there is a lot that we're going to be covering because I want to try to get us to the 1930s. We have 28 days to do it. Well, pitter-patter, Kay. <laughs> so we're going to be covering black theater, and it has a super rich history that can't be covered with just one weekly episode or even really a month. So like I said, we may be able to get to the 30s this year. It may be next year that we get to the 30s. That's how... There will be other Black History Yes, notes. and so if you're not into finding out about Black History Month, sorry, that's what every February is going to be from now on. If you are, awesome. We're glad to have you this month. This will be a little bit different as well because we are changing our rating just for the month of February, so Warren is going to be on his best behavior. Yep. So You should have seen the look Kay gave me. Yep. <laughs> so I'm going to do this in mostly chronological order just so that I can stay organized because there's a lot and I went down a lot of rabbit holes with this. And personally, I really like chronological order. Good. Because that's the way my brain tries to work. Awesome. So this is this is like the one time that I'm going to be sticking with chronological order with theater. Um, so today, I'm just going to start off with a very very basic history of pre-African diaspora, mostly focusing on one specific group of people, the Yoruba people. Okay. So diaspora would be uh, the term for being forced from your homeland, basically. Oh. So uh, the African diaspora would be Africans being taken from Africa and sold into slavery or being refugees, like, this would be, I guess, the first African diaspora. So just diaspora just means being forced to leave your home. Yes. And lots of cultures have had a diaspora. Uh, this is just the African one that we're going to focus on. Uh, in future years, I'm going to be starting the month with a focus on a different group's form of performance. So like I said, this year we're doing the Yoruba Next year, I kind of want to do the Don people, uh, so on and so forth. So, we'll also do a little bit of a catch-up at the start of the year, so that everyone knows 
what we covered the last year if you don't want to re-listen to episodes. So, another thing, this will not be musicals only, because I said so. <laughs> and you are K. And I am K. Your word is law. My word is law. It's one of the only times it can be law. <laughs> so, a lot of black theater will be straight plays, and a lot of them, there are not versions that you can see on YouTube. However, I will be providing links to our sources as well as a list of the books that we are using, and two of the books have full plays in them, which is what I will be reading to Warren so that he can react to them later. <laughs> so that's, that's how these episodes are going to go for everyone listening. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So African theater is a bit different and a lot harder to track down in some of the research material that is out there for a lot of complex reasons. First, the obvious, colonialism, which we could go on a whole tangent about, but I can already see the rant forming behind Warren's eyes. Uh, the white-hot searing rant of rage, yes. Yes, so we won't be focusing... We, we won't go completely into that. Um, another thing is that theater is different with regards to what you would consider theater in the roots in Africa compared to European theater. So performance is woven into so much of the cultures in Africa through different rituals, not all rituals are the same. Uh, I'm actually going to show you a few videos of some Yoruban th ceremonies, uh, and we'll get into them in a little bit. But basically, just know that Africa's not a monolith. It's many cult cultures, many countries. Africa's just the continent that these countries all are on, and all these different cultures are on. Uh, there's also different biomes, there's different peoples, there's different things that needed to be done because you're going to live a different way in the desert than you would in the savanna, than you would in a temperate climate, etc., etc. Well, and I remember learning um, when I was in uh, high school, I had a teacher in a world civilizations class who was mm -hmm. talking about how diverse Africa was yes. prior to col uh, colonialization mm -hmm. or colonization. And um, that teacher had shown us a, a great example of so much diversity and was stating that from the north of Africa down to the south, there was more diversity found in Africa among humankind than there was in any other continent yes. on the planet. Because... So many of these other cultures and different continents, uh, while they are different, there is a lot that is also the same. Yes. Well, and the same can be said for Africa, that diversity is so expansive. Yes. Because there's so many, so many different groups of people in Africa. It's not just, they're all Africans, but they're not the same. It's, like it's, yeah, you've got your, you've got the Yoruban people, you have the Don, you have, uh... Bantu speaking peoples, you have just so many groups that and many that are lost to time. Yeah, many that are lost to time. And that's a big issue with trying to figure out what um, what happened prior to colonialism, because there's a lot of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. So Babatunde Lawal talks about in his essay, The African Heritage of African American Art, in the book Black Theater, Ritual Performance in the African Diaspora, which is also the main source for this episode. Uh, he basically talks about all of the cross-cultures that exist. And so the one that we're going to focus on, uh, that's one of the groups he talks about, is the Yoruba. And we're... We're also going to talk about some of the similarities to just performance art in general. So outside of watching what's been passed down from cultures that still retain their identity post-colonialism, 
it's really hard to tell what the performances were. Because if they weren't passed down, they just disappeared. Um, they it, It's kind of like playing a game of telephone. Yeah. When you've got oral traditions, because they change so much generation to generation. Uh, again, we could do a whole podcast on the horrors of colonialism, but I'm going to leave that to other shows like Pomegranates and Pitchforks. Pitchforks who do, do a great who do job. do a great job. And BTB. I'm not going to say the uh, <laughs> actual name since this is a little bit more accessible to all audiences. So... Um, a really good essay from the book that I was talking about is by J.C. DeGroft. In his essay, The Roots of African Drama and Theater, he talks about the fact that as an artistic expression, drama would be the truest representation of real life, and he emphasizes the aspects that would bring African rituals into the umbrella of drama. So basically, like, whatever drama is supposed to represent what is going on in real life and nothing will really show that more than seeing it live in front of you so you could have a painting of let's see what's a good example you could have a painting that kind of tells you a little bit about the stuff that we saw in oklahoma but then if you see Oklahoma, then you go, oh, that's pretty representational of how it was growing up in the Oklahoma Territory. That sort of stuff. That's the same thing with ritual drama. Ritual drama is a representation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. The first thing that he talks about is this passage from a book called The Magic Island by W.B. Seabrook about Haiti. Now, I'm going to preface, this book was published in 1929, which, you know, Oof. leads to a little bit of problematicness, but the part that J.C. highlights is about a voodoo substitution sacrifice that's used to preserve the custom of human sacrifice for Dambala Oedo, without actually sacrificing a human. And the subject who is being sacrificed will undergo a trance and switch bodies with a goat. So I'm going to read this passage for you so that you've got an idea of how this happens. The ceremony of substitution, when it came, was pure effective magic of a potency which I have never seen equaled in dervish monastery or anywhere. The goat and the girl, side by side before the altar, had been startled, restive, nervous. The smell of blood was in the air, but there was more than that hovering. It was the eternal, mysterious odor of death itself, which both animals and human beings always sense, but not through the nostrils. Yet, now, the two who were about to die mysteriously merged. The girl symbolically, and the goat with a knife in its throat, were docile and entranced were like automatons. The girl was now on her hands and knees in the attitude of a quadruped, directly facing the goat so that their heads and eyes were on a level less than ten inches apart, and thus they stared fixedly into each other's eyes. By shifting slightly, I could see the big, wide, pale blue staring eyes of the goat and the big, black staring eyes of the girl. And I could have almost sworn that the black eyes were gradually, mysteriously becoming those of a dumb beast, while the human soul was beginning to peer out through the blue. But dismiss that, and still I tell you that pure magic was here at work, that something very real and very fearful was occurring. For as the priest wove his ceaseless incantations, the girl began a low, piteous bleeding, in which there was nothing, absolutely nothing, human. And soon, a thing more unnatural occurred. The goat was moaning and crying like a human child. While the papaloi still wove his spells, his hands moving ceaselessly like an old woman carding wool in a dream, the priestess held a twig green with tender leaves between the young girl and the animal, on level with their mouths, against the hairy muzzle of the goat, 
against the chin and soft lips of the girl, and after moments of breathless watching, it was the girl's lips that pursed out and began to nibble at the leaves, nibbling as horned cattle do. As she nibbled thus, the papaloi said, in a hushed but wholly matter-of-fact-like, a man who had finished a hard, solemn task and was glad to rest, Kaiest, there it is. The papaloi was now holding a machete, ground, sharp, and shining. Neither seemed conscious of anything that was occurring, nor did the goat flinch when the papaloi laid his hands upon its horns. Nor did the goat utter any sound as the knife was drawn quickly, deeply, across its throat. But at this instant, as the blood gushed like a fountain into the wooden bowl, the girl, with a shrill, piercing, and then strangled bleat of agony, leaped, shuddered, and fell senseless before the altar. That's wild. Yep. And, again, the goat died, not mm -hmm. the girl. And the priest was able to bring the girl back afterwards. But that was the substitution ceremony. That is a crazy trance. Yes. That is... That would... Ooh, I, I was closing my eyes as you were reading because I was visualizing it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wild, huh? Mm -hmm. So that is an example of impersonation, which would be present in many rituals around the world, including in Africa. And, as de Graft argues, it is the central fact of live drama. In his essay, he talks about the rituals as magic drama, separated from other types with how the impersonator impersonates. So in secular drama, you are consciously aware that you're impersonating someone or something. In this, it was possession, so not the same. But still, there's a little bit of that shred there. So now I'm going to read you... Um, this other line that struck me of his in this same essay. And again, these are in the Black Theater Ritual Performance in the African Diaspora book that I highly recommend. De Graff says, The actor who understands his art knows that he must try to strike a fine balance between his awareness of the fictional world of the character impersonated and his awareness of the workaday world, his audience, and his artistic self has. He knows that no matter how deeply he immerses himself in the role of the fictional character, there is always a psychological point of safety beyond which he dare not go, lest he be swept out of his depth and get carried away on the uncertain currents of hysteria and ecstasy. In simple theatrical terms, this means that the actor loses control of himself, and, with that loss of control, his grip on the role and on his audience, if it is an artistically sensitive audience. It also means that acting is at its most electrifying when it dares to go as close as possible to the psychological safety point, the farthest limit within control, the brink of possession. <laughs> so... You know, he, he does go on to say that there's going to be a middle ground between your dramatic art and your magic drama. And this is where two of my favorite African rituals, which are the ones that we're going to watch today, fall in. They are the Agungun and Galede masquerade dramas. And these are for the Yoruba people. So first we're going to go a little bit into the background of Agungun. Egungun is the cult of the Yoruban people that's centered around ancestor worship. Now, it's not a cult in the sense of, like, Jonestown or Heaven's Gate. This would be more the sense of religious practices that center around something, somewhere, someone. Basically, the bare bones of religion without all of the dogma. So that's what we're talking about with cult. So, with a goon goon, you would have men wear masks that were meant to be an ancestor. They're symbolic, they're not literal, so they don't look like anybody. They're just these big masks, basically. And 
You'll see these masks in the videos that I show you later, but it's kind of like some of them will be a lot of layers of cloth that are hanging down. Um, some of them will have raffia, but it's it's always worn by men. Women never wear the masks, hmm. and we'll go into that in a minute. But they, women do make the masks, and they do participate in the Egungun ceremony. They just don't actually do the dance. Interesting. So to start off, I'm going to read you a passage from Things Fall Apart, which is by Chinua Achebe, and I think everyone should read this book anyway, where they talk about an Egungun performance that the main character, Okonkwo, partakes in. And then the Egungu appeared. The women and children sent up a great shout and took to their heels. It was instinctive. A woman fled as soon as an Egungu came into sight. And when... As on that day, nine of the great masked spirits in the clan came together. It was a terrifying spectacle. Each of the nine Egwugu represented a village of the clan. Their leader was called Evil Forest. Smoke poured out of his head. Okonkwo's wives, and perhaps other women as well, might have noticed that the second Egwugu had the springy walk of Okonkwo. And they might have noticed that Okonkwo was not among the titled men and elders who sat behind the row of Agwugu. The Agwugu with the springy walk was one of the dead fathers of the clan. He looked terrible with the smoked raffia body, a huge wooden face painted white except for the round, hollowed eyes, and the charred teeth that were as big as a man's fingers. On his head were two powerful horns. <laughs> so you notice that there's a little bit of a difference there between the substitution ritual and this. One has a lot more flair, I guess, to it, because it's the it's more theatrical and less ritualistic, I guess, at least in the way that I think of ritualistic, which is kind of tinged with a kind of Greek so the filter. Big difference. One was conscious, one was not. Oh. The girl was not consciously acting like a goat. She was being possessed. Ekonkwo is consciously performing his role as the Egwugu, or in other circles it would be the Egungun. So, slight tangent, if that's okay. Yes. Do they, in your research, does it say how they're able to get the girl to go into this trance? Nope. Okay. If you... I've done trance work before, and it can be kind of wild. Yeah, and because I, I wasn't sure if it was something to do with, um, like, a deep meditation to kind of put someone into a trance-like state to where they are susceptible to uh, that environment. Or it if it was, might be. Cause I it's... wasn't sure if it was, or if it was like, you know, the oracles of Delphi where they just make them inhale yeah. chemicals or not no, just I, chemicals. I see until... where I see where the question is with that, but I did not see how that happens with that. Okay. Um but basically in a way the difference what in the impersonation there was the acting. I mean this is bare bones acting mm -hmm. what a conquo was doing, but it's still acting. So, according to another essay by Uli Bayer, referenced by de Graft, uh, on occasion, there are stories acted out with these dramas. And he talks about one that I really like that I'll read out. So, in some groups, little stories are enacted. The Shango worshiper begins his display, is interrupted by policemen, and finally bribes his way out of trouble. The harlot often does a kind of striptease act, displaying long cloth breasts and embroidered pubic hair, and she may frequently do a mock copulation with the policeman or some other character. Oh! Because the Igwugu or the Igungun are dead ancestors, or rather representations of these archetypes. They're not a specific person. So, and this is where you kind of are having little skits in these rituals. Ah, it's see. not just, oh, they're dancing to represent, they are, well, they're dancing to represent something, but they're dancing to represent 
a story in some of these instances. So we are seeing sort of the foundations being laid for theater now. Uh, we'll talk about the Galede next. So according to both de Graft and Bear, they are for the placation of witches. So what does that mean? So this would be... So witchcraft is a little bit different there than what uh, the rest of the Western world would consider witchcraft. Witchcraft in a lot of West African culture is subconscious or unconscious. You are not in control of what you're doing. So um, it's different from sorcery, where sorcery, you have control. It's based on intent. Yeah, sorcery is based on intent. Witchcraft is unconscious. So when you say the, the, the placating of witches, mm -hmm. so is it is it encouraging? Is it like... It's saying, hey, don't... Uh, when you're having your unconscious search for causing whatever issues, don't go to my group. Don't uh, go to my town. Go gotcha. go somewhere else. Witches, witches aren't welcome. Yeah, basically. It also will uh, be there to honor women in general, both deities and otherwise, because in this culture, women are extremely powerful spiritually. And this is also kind of tied into why women don't wear the masks of the Agungun or of the Galede. But they make them. But they make them. And I like that that uh, dynamic there, that they're not mm -hmm. wearing them, but they are so tied uh, and so powerful spiritually that they are mm -hmm. crafting the spiritual item yes. that is then being used. Yes, and I, I could do a deep dive later on on all of the reasoning behind why women don't have certain parts in the rituals, but in other parts they do, because... Basically, women, just by being women, are more powerful, and that power is kind of scary to some, but we're not a witchcraft podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be pomegranates and pitchforks territory if they cover witchcraft or whichever path territory if they hop into that. I, I will let them go on to the witchcraft tangent so that I don't. <laughs> Fair enough. That was one of my favorite classes, though, learning about witchcraft in college when I was doing my uh, cultural anthropology stuff. So it's it's fun. <laughs> so another thing about Galede is that she was one of the children of Yamoja, who is the Orisha of pregnant women and rivers and is often called the mother of all Orisha. And the Orisha would be your Yoruban deities. So Yamoja couldn't have children, and she went to the Ifa Oracle, who told her, all right, here's what you do. You're going to dance with this wooden image on your head. I want you to put metal anklets on your feet, and then you're going to have kids. And, oh, you need to also perform a sacrifice. So she does that, and she has two children. She has Galede and Efe, and those children found partners, and then couldn't have kids either. So they go to the same oracle, and he tells them, okay, do this ritual, put a wooden image on your head, dance with your anklets, make a sacrifice, and that succeeded, and so the Galede rituals were born out of that. The date for the annual ritual is set through divination, and then the F.A. dance can be performed on the night of the ritual, so that's the sun's dance. Then the next day is Galede, the daughter's dance. And so now I'll read you Bear's description because when we watch both of these, only one of the ones that I could find had subtitles. <laughs> That's so... okay. That's okay. <laughs> All right. So Bear describes with the Galede performances, the ritual dance always takes place at night. It is preceded by sacrifice and accompanied by praise songs and a prayer. It culminates in the appearance of Efe, a powerful mask, preceded by a young girl who carries a witch in the form of a bird in a calabash. And then he talks about the fact that there is an entertainment value with this because he says, From the theatrical point of view, 
the dance that usually follows the next afternoon is more interesting. (laughs) For the avowed purpose of this dance is to provide entertainment to the witches and keep them in good temper, and of course, at the same time, entertain the townspeople at large who had been excluded from the night ceremony. So sorry, there was a line in there that yes. piqued my brain when you said keep the witches in good humor. Yes. Do you know if it's if it was a common belief that the witches' um, powers or abilities only manifested when they were like under emotional distress? So by being happy, they were yeah. Not... If I remember right, that's okay. the case. Because just the context of yeah. that line made me think that. No, that's a very fair question. I remember. Um... One of the things that the teacher that told me about the witchcraft rituals is that it's a, it's a stomach-related thing. So, like, hmm. stomach upset is a sign that, oh, you're performing witchcraft somewhere on someone. We don't know who, but... You're a powerful witch, then. I know. My, my IBS means I'm super <laughs> powerful. No. Um, like I said, I really was tempted to do this big old deep dive, and then I was just like... I can't do this to you. <laughs> I, I can't do this to him. I'm oh, sure you can. Uh, I, I probably would. Um, so like I said, women don't perform this. They, they don't perform the galette dance, but they do make the headdresses and they do tell the stories. And that's that's their role in it. They don't get to dance and... Another thing I forgot to tell you with a goon is that you do not touch the agoon goon because that would court death. And that's the, the mask. That's the giant masks that we'll see the differences between the two when we watch the videos. So one thing that DeGroff brings up is a list of things that make it possible for true dramatic art to flourish. I'll read you his conditions. One, a worldview which predisposes the people to ritual practices requiring a strong element of (laughs) role-playing. Check. Two, an inclination for narrative expression based on that community's own history and legends, myth, and folklore. There's a check. Three, a strong feeling for social solidarity in which the emergence of an embryonic form of drama from the interaction of conditions one and two above fosters the resultant form of art not only as an expression of the community's ethos, but perhaps more important, as a means of further strengthening its sense of cohesion and identity. Another check. So telling stories to bring the community together and make it stronger through reinforcing their history. Yes. And here we come to number four, a system of notation through which, is the mo- through which the most successful dramatic creations are communicated to wider audiences and what is more conserved and kept sh- in sure memory for future generations. Not a check. And last, and this one's going to make you mad. Freedom or protection from such traumatic historical experiences as ruthless religious, political, and economic domination by aliens. And I mean me and my ilk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are uh, two things that... No check. No check. The, this ritual would be considered folk art because it's oral tradition. Folk art is not generally written down. Um, it's also why you get some of the folk songs that are like 50 verses long because a verse gets added on every year and stuff. Like <laughs> Alice's Friggin' Restaurant, that's a 60-minute song now. <laughs> Uh, not Alice's Friggin' Restaurant. It's just called Alice's Restaurant. But the fact that it's 60 minutes long now... Warrants the Friggin'. It warrants the Friggin'. So, um... You get your game of telephone, because things are evolving, and so on and so forth. And that's, you know, the case for human history. But Sub-Saharan Africa got ravaged by colonialism, which 
kind of makes it hard to keep your dramatic expression alive. It's a miracle that any of this survived. Especially since part of the colonialism tactic was to squash any and all yeah. cultural relevant storytelling. Yeah, I mean, this was 500 years of people on the continent just having their religions destroyed, their cultures torn apart, families separated, people enslaved and murdered, and not just, like, taken away enslaved, but enslaved on the continent. There are some stories about King Leopold that older audiences y'all can listen to on BTB uh, kids definitely shouldn't. Not yet. Agreed. Don't ha don't have that destroyed for you yet. But other places have also covered what King Leopold of Belgium did. And a lot of the colonialism led to cultural practices and religions being banned because European Christianity does not allow for other cultures to exist. Because you're just told that, no... It's pagan. Yeah, this culture's pagan, this culture's wrong, get rid of it. So, now, after that happy note, I'm so sorry, uh, we'll go take a look at some videos of Egungun and Galene masquerade dramas, and we can talk a little bit about it uh, before we uh, move on to our next episodes. This episode will be a little bit shorter because of the lack of material uh and then next episode will be also a tiny bit shorter because episode three will be your first 1k production 1k because i will be performing all the roles for you oh because i have to read it out of a book because mm. no one has performed this show in a long time i look forward all right, so let's go take a brief intermission and watch some Egungun and Glede, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Yay! Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our most favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah! Today, we would like to send a big thank you to our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu, and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci and Reagan. Thank you all so much for all of your help in supporting our show. We truly appreciate it. Today, I want to promote a great black podcast, The Class Prefects. This is a conversational podcast between two Nigerian friends, later joined by a Ghanaian friend, as they talk about many topics, including politics, religion, pop culture, race, and many other things. I was binging this show all week, and I absolutely love it. A heads up for our younger audience, this show is rated explicit. The Class Prefix has been running since January of 2016, and will be posting new episodes soon. Definitely check them out on Spotify, iTunes, and other major podcatchers. And now... The lights are going down and the music's starting back up, so let's head back to the second act of our show. Okay, so what'd you think of the Agungun and Glede? It was wild. It was... I don't know what I was expecting. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. It was very... One of the things that I thought was surprising was how uh, colorful the mm -hmm. costumes and everything was. Like, yeah. I don't know why I was picturing it to be... Because it was talking about, you know, stuff of sacrifice and stuff like that. So I think I was picturing something grittier or darker yeah. looking. But it was very... Like, there was no somberness about it. It was very, like, upbeat, high energy, yes. very excited. Yeah. That's that's one of my favorite things about it is just how energizing it is. And it makes you kind of go, I want to go there. I want to be there for these ceremonies. The the decapitated goat was... Yeah, that, so... I wasn't expecting that. For anyone uh, watching any of the videos... 
the 24-minute one that's a documentary does have the goat sacrifice. It's not the one that I described earlier, but they have the sacrifice that occurs before the masquerade can begin, and it's graphic. It is graphic, but uh, yes, that is that is the only graphic thing that happens in it, so... And it's towards the end, so you can watch up to the point when he's doing the divination and then pouring the libations. And once you see him start to pour the libations, that's... Or actually, no, it's right after he starts taking the cola nuts out that that's when the goat happens, so... I mean, um, definitely a uh, gore warning for it, but I think that... It is important to watch for the context of of what's, what's going, going on. Yeah, and I mean, animal sacrifice is nothing new. It's mm-hmm. that's been done for thousands of years. Yeah, and it's not like the animal goes to waste either. Yeah, if, the, if this was a cultural anthropology podcast, I would go into the purposes of why you would do an animal sacrifice at certain times of the year <laughs> and stuff like that, because that's not only in African cultures; it's in almost every culture but yeah. we are not an anthropology co- podcast so <laughs> i will get us back on track <laughs> no worries babe so uh what did you think with the one documentary that we watched the 24 minute one with the two elders i was interesting i thought the discussion about the the origins of the cloth used in the costumes how it was about using these pieces of cloth to carry the bones of mm-hmm. the of the progenitor of the father of uh of the children in the story that we're mm-hmm. talking about they go to the oracle asking uh what they need to do and the oracle says hey go to this location and they find the bones of their father and the oracle says use cloth to carry them and that's why the costumes have all these different uh different colored cloths that don't you look at them and you're kind of like it almost looks it kind of reminds me of a quilt that Mm -hmm. has like different patches different colors um but then it really goes together and in one of the other uh videos it was talking about the symbolism be uh, with the cloth that was uh beyond the context of the story that the one elder was talking about was saying that the different pieces of cloth represent the different people of the community and how even though they're all different, they all come together and they're all part of the same community. And I just really, I really liked how uh, invested they were in being like, this is all us. We are all this. And it was was very uplifting. Yeah. And even like the thing that I loved too was the oldest man talking about how everybody comes in not just the people who still practice the traditional religion but also the christians and the muslims come in because this is our heritage we Mm -hmm. do this so it's it's even in the face of people who would even in the face of the other religions that come in that would kind of well christianity more so clashing rather than uh islam clashing with uh the traditional beliefs but it it definitely uh is great to see that even then they're just no this is what we do and we're going to do this we do this every year and i and, you know because it's a it's a honoring of your heritage honoring of the ancestors of yeah where you came from because it's like you may practice a certain faith but it's more of honoring the ways of those who came before yes and i don't i don't think that there should be too much conflict of celebrating both you exactly know? and it yeah it was really interesting to watch because mm-hmm. um, it correct me if i'm wrong because i i'm not sure if i was understanding completely the the older elder mm-hmm. i i want to be snarking call him one tooth um mm-hmm. or snaggle tooth but he was it sounded like he was saying he was the main elder and all the other elders like because he was at one point he was talking about that if he didn't participate the ceremony would not have the same significance because he's the eldest elder yeah his costume is the most important is kind of what he was talking about yes and it almost it almost kind of seemed like there was a slight 
rivalry between the other elders. So it's, I don't know what the uh, social power dynamic is as mm-hmm. it, like if, if when that eldest elder were to pass on, if one of the other elders would kind of move in to take that spot as the alpha elder, so to speak. I'm not sure because it's different from each community too. I mean, who knows? Who knows how it's decided? Mm -hmm. But it did. It did seem interesting how like it's all in good spirit, but it it almost seemed like they were trying to kind of like one up each other (laughs) with who is representing the elders the best and Mm -hmm. who has you know the most uh, gumption in their Mm -hmm. their uh, dance and their ceremonies and um, and of course like the costumes they're wearing look like heavy and they're they're multi-layered yes and these folks are in africa so like you pointed mm. out at one point one of the they'd like one of the the people in the costumes they kind of ducked away into a corner and there were like six people fanning him yep just to help him cool down a little bit and uh it, it was wild to mm-hmm. watch yeah and What's great to watch with these two as well, because we watched a few documentaries that were more recent and then a few things that were older. The oldest one I think we saw, at least that had a date, said it was 1995. Uh, there was the, well, yeah, for the uh, Agungun, the oldest was 95, and for the Galede, the oldest was 1960. Oh. Um, that was the UNESCO one, I believe, that was 1960. Oh. But uh, the for the Agungun ones, and for the Galede, but I noticed it more with Agungun, you would have people sitting on motorcycles getting invested. You'd have people filming with their smartphones. That was cool to Even see. Even though, like, we're in the age of smartphones, there's still this, no, this is important to us. And even though we know, like, we're connected to the world, we still can enjoy our heritage and our rituals mm-hmm. and because it's it's still ancestral it still connects you to the past because and one of the, i actually really liked seeing that like in, in uh one of the videos there was a kid there with his smartphone you know taking video taking pictures you know mm-hmm. and then looking at it and it was a real interesting shift because uh when the filming quality of the camera i was thinking that it was older, but to see it and have that that understanding that it is modern, that it is happening still, mm-hmm. uh, I liked that because even in the face of what those cultures have been through, yes, like they are still holding on to the important aspects of their heritage mm-hmm. and have carried it forward. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I, I liked about that is seeing that kid take the pictures, and I'm like how wild would that be to just be there and be sharing that with the world? Like this is going on now. This isn't an ancient ceremony. Like this is our ceremony. This is something that we are doing now. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, and that's why I was trying to be very careful when discussing these rituals to keep it in the present because it is the present. It's like, yes, these happened, but they also happen. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of my gripe with whenever I see black and white photographs from like the 90s on things. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, you're making this momentous thing look older than it is because of the filming that you're doing. Yeah. So things like the little, like seeing the cell phone made me happy. Yeah, me too. And Rather. it also made me go, this doesn't delegitimize at all what they're doing because I've I kind of can imagine a little bit of a disconnect um one thing that I guess it can remind me of is how I felt going in when I went to like the Sistine Chapel and I was taking photos in there but I kind of was like is this okay because I don't want people to think that I'm disrespecting a religion that isn't mine but then i see i i see these people filming their ritual and it's like yeah no it doesn't invalidate it you're just sharing your ritual and 
well, because we, as humans, we connect through sharing. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, you're mm -hmm. you're creating something that you can then connect with by sharing it, by yes. showing this image that of something important, by showing this video of something important. Like yeah. It's, it's just a, the other. It's just another way that we as humans are trying to bridge mm -hmm. the gap between one another through sharing. Yeah. And I, I will say, there are a ton of videos of Agungun masquerades. I was really surprised. And... It made me really grateful for YouTube. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you know, I'll watch a lot of dumb stuff on YouTube, and I'm like, this is actually such an incredible platform that people who would not normally have a platform to share this kind of stuff can. They can upload yes. it, and they can share their culturally relevant and very interesting mm -hmm. ceremonies with, you know, my pasty butt sitting over here in the U.S. Yeah, and it, it was fun, too, because, like, there are videos on YouTube that are, like, the biggest masquerade this year, and just tall, tall masquerades, <laughs> and I almost showed you some of those, but then I was going, oh, it is almost nine. I should, <laughs> I should stick to the ones that I picked. I like you. You picked good mm -hmm. ones. I was really impressed. So is it? Uh, I I have a hard time with the names. Mm -hmm. Is it Agungun? Egungun. Egungun. Mm -hmm. uh, Egun. So the ones that had like uh, the costumes with moving parts on the head. Those pieces? were Galede. Galede. Okay. I was mm -hmm. getting Agungun is just the long flowing multi cloth pieces. Yes. That the, the the that the elders would wear mm -hmm. when they for the ancestors. For the ancestors. Mm -hmm. The um Galede, mm -hmm. the Galede ones that we saw as well, uh so those were more relevant to the person wearing it, right? Like what they want or what they want to ward off. Yeah, a bit. Cause it's that one is the one where it was based off of the story of Yamoja's kids doing the ritual after Yamoja had done the ritual so that they could have children. And so it turned into this honoring women and also making sure that women or witches wouldn't be angry with you depending on where you're performing it. And the masks would symbolize either... The messengers or it would symbolize something that you shouldn't do or something that you want it the masks all were just very different except for the mask at midnight because the mask at midnight is always the son Efe, the the boy um and then in during the day it's the different types of masks and uh that one felt more performancey than the Agungun did. Like, more like a structured performance. Is that the one that you were saying that only the elders get to watch? Um, well, the elders get to watch the F.A., but, like, both the F.A. and Galade dances um, are more performance-based than the Agungun one, where you saw the Agungun literally walking with people and yeah, dancing a, around. Had and, a crowd around him, and he would just kind of, like, peel off and then go over and, like, bless somebody. And then it was it's, it was much more... Watching that one, it, I got the feeling that it was much more of, um, in the sense of what was going on, that the Agungun was letting the spirits guide him kind of thing. Like, yeah. Because like, there wasn't structure to that one it was more free flow and then it was like he would veer off and okay you get a blessing then da -da 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 -da. okay and then veer over here and then this person gets a blessing yeah so it was almost like he was trying to mm -hmm. channel the ancestors who needs a blessing kind yeah. of thing and you with the agungun uh you still get a little bit of the flair of whoever is performing as oh, the agungun it's not like with the substitution ceremony with the girl and the goat it is still like this this person is performing as this per, as this uh being whereas with agun or with the uh, galede that one they're still doing that sort of thing but it's definitely more scripted almost it felt like or choreographed? Yes, yeah, definitely choreographed because they they tend to be closer to each other, like in these lines, and they mm -hmm. tend to not like venture because people were like 
sitting in rows like people were like sitting down to watch it wasn't a let's walk with the agungun as yeah. it traverses the the village you know yeah. the town um the galede one was much more of a okay get your chair let's park here and sit and let's watch yes and the galede like they would interact with the audience like at one point one that i want to say it was supposed to be a hyena Maybe. Either a hyena or some other carnivorous animal that picked up the little boy and oh, had his mouth that moving. And... Yeah, it looked like it was snatching the kid. Yeah. Yes, and so with the Galette costumes, they have a face or a head that it's not just flowing fabric that comes down and the costumes are more meant to look feminine, so... Yeah, because the whole it was, that was the whole thing that you were talking about, where the women would make the masks and the men would wear them. Mm-hmm. Um, except we did see, I think that might have changed. Um, women were still sewing the costumes, but men were carving. The were carving the head pieces. But that was the the one I was talking about, where it had like some of them had they had moving parts, like yeah. the, the hyena one you're talking about had a mouth that opened. There was, you know, uh. uh costume that had like a man on top that he looked like he had a wallet yes. and there were like pulling parts that would like come up different money bills would come up so i yeah. don't know if that one was saying hey i would like more money or if it was mm-hmm. saying don't be greedy like or, or what the the meaning was behind that particular uh costume in that particular dancer and then mm-hmm. there was one that was like a motorcycle driving yes. back and forth it on, was so on the head cool. like and then was it uh, two men who were like lifting a, a coffin or something? Yeah. So it's like, it, it it was, I was watching those costumes sitting here, like watching the movement of the person, like, okay, that has to be tension based using pulley systems. Mm-hmm. I'm like watching their movements to see how they're activating it, yeah. you know? And I really couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, in, the, the engineering behind the costumes is is really impressive as well that yeah, they have these moving parts it's puppetry it's, it's so yeah, puppetry, cool yeah puppetry incorporated with the costumes mm-hmm. and and beautiful like really colorful too like mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was just really Im- i was really impressed with a lot of it yeah so you're seeing the bedrock now of theater with those two performances and that's again next year you're gonna see some different ones you'll see I think I'm going to have you watch the Don uh, performance. I think it's Don and not Dan. It's spelled Dan, but I think it's pronounced Don. Um, because I I cannot find the uh, Ashanti ones, but I'm going to keep searching. But I at least found my ones for the Don. Um, but yeah, you'll, you, you just get this nice little bedrock of where some of these things come from. And I... I pointed it out to you but uh there were some dance steps that looked kind of familiar they with did. the galette yeah am i allowed the, to talk about that a little bit yeah you can you can talk a little bit of what it looked like to you it looked like tap dancing yeah because it was a lot of very fast uh well tapping of like the ground like as they would walk there'd be a lot of like quick kicking and it just it looked a lot like mm-hmm. tap dancing and we will uh actually be talking about the father of tap dancing tomorrow okay. or you, you you whenever episode two <laughs> releases i guess not necessarily tomorrow <laughs> uh but you know you know i'm a sucker for tap dance yes so i i mean i'm a little sorry for what the full origin story is gonna be for that but it's also gonna it's gonna be a mixed bag as it, to to borrow or a phrase from one of our favorite podcasts it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. So, yeah, is there anything else that you would like to say about the uh, Galede or the Gungun or... Which one was the twerking? That was the Gungun. Those were the women that were singing the songs to uh, talk about the ancestors and stuff. And... Okay, because I don't remember seeing them, like, accompanying the... Uh... The people in the costumes because mm-hmm. their bit they were stationary and they had yes. drummers behind them and then they were they were they were uh shaking their groove things yes and singing about 
you know, this guy can't be a king. He's too short. Oh, that that just, got, that made me laugh a bit because I was like, as a uh, a shorter man, I was like, hey, now it's not my fault. <laughs> so that's that's a little bit of the performance side of the Agungun is that there are skits that sometimes go with it, and like one of the Agungun that we saw, it was a more uh, typical Agungun where they had the piles of cloth and then there was one that was meant to look a little bit more feminine of an Agungun that was dancing that kind of was the harlot type character. Yeah. And yeah, there it's just it's amazing and I'm so glad that we are able to see that. And I did notice the the masks on the uh Agungun did vary quite a bit cuz the first one we saw it had what looked like almost like a tiny head on top. Yeah. And then one of the other ones we saw had a much more elaborate mask. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was interesting because the, uh, Galende? Galede. Galede. The Galede, while they were all different, met almost a more uniform criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the same could be said for the Agungun as well. But I was just, the, the varying mask type was seemed to be much different for the Igungun and it's just it yeah it's a little bit of uh I don't want to say culture shock but a little overwhelming mm-hmm. uh culturally because I've never seen this before mm-hmm. and I was just like absorbing it and trying to process it as I was absorbing it and trying to kind of like make sense of it mm-hmm. uh cuz it's wildly different than anything I'm familiar with. Yes. But it is incredibly intriguing. Yes. So it, it honestly, it made me sit here and go, I want to get my passport together <laughs> to go back to the motherland because, yeah. So, yeah, I, it, for me, it gives me this it, it's that same looking back thing that I was talking about with, uh, with, uh, Ron Hartfield, where he was talking about, oh, our experience yes. is always looking back. And that's, this was one of those things that kind of filled that for me a little bit to be sense. able to see that. So it's great that you can watch this on YouTube for free. Mm -hmm. You can see this. That people are putting it out there to Mm -hmm. share it. Yes. And so even if I can't go across the ocean, I still can feel like I'm there a little bit. It's it's great. It's wonderful. The internet is a wonderful thing sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So, let's let's prepare you for what we're going to talk about next. We'll talk about it for the next episode. Um, We can't really talk about black theater without talking about slavery, racism, everything that you're dealing with, and all of the hardships. So next next episode, we're going to be covering minstrel shows which we've talked about in our episodes proper, but not in great detail, and how that was kind of the only outlet for black actors for a long time. We're going to talk about Tom shows a little bit, the Uncle Tom shows, Uh uh, which were very popular. And uh, we'll talk about William Henry Lane, who was the father of tap dance and was a black man who got his start with minstrel shows and ended up creating tap dance, jazz dance, bunch of dance forms wow. basically sprung from his routine that he did. And then we will close out talking about Little Africa and the African Grove Theater, which was the first black theater in America. Oh, cool. And, but before we can get to that, we have to kind of go through the heavy stuff. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel there. And yeah. then episode three, you'll get your first 1K play. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> so for those of you listening, thank you so much. 
We hope that you enjoy this series that we're doing. Again, this is going to be a annual thing. I'm really excited to do it, and especially because there are more plays being created now by black playwrights. So I'm I'm excited because we will just have material forever, and it makes me happy. And if you'd like to follow Kay and I, you can check out our home base at ToneDeafMusical.com. We have links to all of our social media, as well as the Cast Junkie Discord server. We have a channel over there if you'd like to stop in and say hi. Yep. Uh, just a heads up, that channel is... It would be better if you're 18 or older just because there is swearing in that channel. So don't go on that channel without parent permission. <laughs> or parent supervision if you're under 18, because, yeah, <laughs> just a warning there. Warren is behaving for these. Warren is behaving for these episodes, but normally this show is not necessarily kid-friendly, so there's our disclaimer again for all of you. <laughs> so that'll be it for today. Next Next episode will be uh, a little bit heavier, but I promise things will get better. Okay, I trust you. I'm glad. I'm glad that you trust me. Mwahaha. I regret. <laughs> That'll be it for today. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Deaf. Tone Deaf.